All right, good morning, everybody. How are you guys all doing? Really? Out there online, are you really doing good? We're going to talk about pride today, and I want to tell you how that works. Last night, as Pastor Craig said, a lot of, the, first of all, welcome, everybody, wherever you are, Tanzania, our family, I think, I think Pastor Gabe and her mom are live streaming from New Mexico, um, wherever you are, just glad that you're here. Um, I'm struggling with a couple things this morning, and what I'm struggling with is I spent the last several hours wrestling with God. I mean, wrestling with him. He's going to win, and I knew he was going to win. But I had in my mind how I wanted a certain thing to go this morning, and I had to give that up. And it's difficult sometimes because what I had in my mind, when I woke up this morning, 2.30 in the morning, it was already heavy on my heart because my wife was in New Mexico dealing with, uh, with her mother and, and comforting her mom. All good things, but you're home alone, and it's just different when that's not what you're... She even took Bodie. She even took the dog. So I'm like, I am totally alone, except for a cat, which no substitute. Sorry for cat people. But, but um, I got the phone call at 2.30 this morning where our good friend Scott uh, had been taken by ambulance to the hospital with a, with a heart issue, a cardiac issue. Um, and it's a good thing that he's admitted he's there now, he's getting care. Um, but man, Kelly, uh, his wife, had it heavy on her heart to, to get prayer for him. And so here's what I, in my mind, I immediately went, well, I'm setting aside the teaching for today, and we're just going to pray. Because is there anybody here who doesn't have, raise your hand if you've got something going on in your life that could use some prayer. Okay, those who didn't, be careful. That's what I said. No, I don't need to do that. I need prayer. We all need prayer. And this body is here to pray for one another. If you're out there online and you didn't raise your hand, think about it. Do you really not have anything going on in your life that you could use prayer for? Or do you, like many of us, want to say, I got this. It's all good. Don't worry. I, I don't need to share this with everybody. I actually texted Kelly this morning and I said, can I publicly in the church body pray for Scott? And in my mind, I'm like, I don't want to embarrass him. I don't want to have him bombarded with questions. I don't want to all this stuff. And she said, yes, duh. Well, she didn't say duh. That was, that was my injection. But in my mind, I was like, we're not even going to teach. We're just going to, we're just going to focus on prayer because, gosh, isn't that what we're supposed to be as a body? Aren't we supposed to pray for one another and lift one another up? So we're going to do that here in just a minute. But when I was wrestling with God, telling God, good thing, Lord, I'm going to set aside the message and we're just going to pray to you today. You know what he said to me? My word is life. My word is life and my word brings peace and my word brings order to the chaos. And so he said, no, no, no. I gave you that message. Teach it. So we're going to do that, but not before we take a minute and we just pray. I want everybody, everybody here to pray with me, not we're going to watch the pastor pray. We're going to pray as a body. 
I picture all of our prayers just lifting, and, and, and Psalms tells us that, and worship tells us that, that our, our beautiful voices and our prayers just raise up to heaven where the Lord hears them. And I want to do that. I want to do that as a body. So let's pray together. We're going to pray for Ukraine, all those things that are going on. We're going to pray for everybody who is hurting. Everybody. And I don't mean just hurting physically, in need of physical healing, mental healing. The spirit of suicide is heavy. I hear it all the time. That is something that as a body we should be coming against, and we're going to do that this morning. Those people who are just hurting because they're, they're alone, experiencing the, the idea of being alone, and we as a body make ways. Our, our singles lunch, brunch that we're going to, seems like a small thing, but it's not if you spend most of your days alone. It's a big thing, and we should be able to support each other. So let's do that as a body. Would you join me, and let's just pray. If you want to pray, if you want to get on your knees, if you want to just raise your hands, if you want to pray for your own personal things, that's fine, but let's take some time and just do this intentionally. All right, Father, Lord God, we lift up the chaos in this world to you. What we see is chaos, Lord. You know that there is an order to it. You are a God of order. And none of this is catching you by surprise, but Lord, it it sure seems chaotic to us. When we look at countries being invaded by other countries, when we see the things going on in the world with sickness and death and COVID and arguing over social issues, All of it comes together to paint a picture of chaos that the world is spinning out of control. But Lord, you have promised us from the beginning that yes, it is way beyond our control. But it's not beyond your control. And so Lord, we lift up, we lift everything up to you. I lift up our good friend, Scott, who's in the hospital. Lord, I pray that you give him peace, that you give his wife peace and comfort, that you give the doctors supernatural vision and wisdom to be able to diagnose and cure using medicine that you have created and given to us as a gift to cure him. Lord, and if it's your will just to reach out and touch, then do that, because that works too. Lord, anybody who's here dealing with, with health issues, with mental health issues, with just the hurt and the anguish of a, of a world we can't figure out, or a loved one who is dealing with mental issues. Lord, reach out, give them peace, give them comfort. And Lord, take all of those physical issues that we're going through and just restore us. Lord, if it's your will to restore our physical bodies, then I pray that you do it right now in your name. Yes, God. In the name of Jesus, anything that is, that is hurting us, any sickness, any affliction, any ache, any pain, talking to a good friend outside on our security team. He's got sore ribs. Simple things like that, we want to say, oh, it's no big deal. Lord, you can heal that with a word. I pray that you do that right now in the name of Jesus. Heal us. And if it's not your will to heal us immediately of those physical things, give us peace knowing that you're in control. Give us peace knowing that it's all in your time. The work has been done. Jesus conquered death on the cross. And we await an expectancy of the day when all pain, all sickness, 
All this chaos is put to rest once and for all. And we stand with you in heaven. Father, we look forward to that. I lift up the whole nation of Ukraine. And I stand against the behemoth spirit that is right now operating in the Russian leadership. It's not a surprise. Your word has promised us from the beginning that there will be those spirits that will influence nation against nation. And Lord, we see that happening now. So Lord, it's not my place to sit here and say which one's right and which one's wrong. I have my ideas. But Lord, we know that you promised us this would happen. But you also promised us that you will use everything for the good of those who are called. And Lord, I pray that you do just that. I pray that we see the glory in your sovereign will play out in the world right now, that something that we see as terrible, the pain and the suffering that is undeniable that happens in a war situation, Father, I know that you are going to use it to weave it together in ways that we could never imagine. I pray that maybe you bring an awakening to some of those countries who don't know you or the political structure is opposed to you, Father, I pray that maybe you bring an uprising through this and that people all over the world would say, forget what man has put in place. We need what God has established and ordained from the beginning. Let us cry out to you because you are the one that can calm the storm. You are the one that can knit bones together. You are the one that can restore and redeem a broken world. So, Lord, we lift all of our problems, all of our issues, all of our concerns, all of our fears. We lift them up to you. And we ask for your hand to be upon them in peace, in comfort, in healing. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that we were able to gather here today and learn more about your word, which is your heart for us, written down on paper, and that we can celebrate that and learn more about your heart for us every day. We thank you for this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Okay. We're going to get into a section of Scripture today. If, you've, if you're new um, go back to our archives and check out the messages. If you've been coming here, maybe you missed a week or two, we're still in the Gospel of Mark. We're going through it chapter by chapter, almost verse by verse, because there's so much to learn there about life today. We are in a section actually today in chapter 6 in Mark that is actually going to feel maybe a little bit like a history lesson. Now, if you love history, you might go, yes, like I love history. It excites me. But there are people who are like, uh, I didn't know we were going to do history today. I wanted to hear the gospel. There's nothing in the word of God that is there by accident. There's no filler. There's nothing there that like, well, let's just, we got an extra couple pages. This isn't high school where you've done 500 words and you need 1,500. So you go back and add a whole lot of filler to make up. The word of God is not like that. Every single word that is in there is there for a reason, and it's got a lesson. It's got something to teach us about God's heart for us, about what our heart for him and for each other ought to be. So we're going to look at a scripture today, a section that, again, kind of reads like a, like a history lesson, but there is a very important message 
that we're going to pull out of this. So stay with me. We are, uh, again, we're in this section. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling around the Galilee. Just a couple of reminder scriptures. Mark 6, 4. He's gone to Nazareth, and they rejected him because they knew him. Mark 6, 4. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not dishonored except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. They basically just refused the offer of the miraculous that he was that he was promising them, that he was giving to them, and they just said, no, we know you, no. And they couldn't accept him. And because they did that, there was an almost complete absence of the miraculous there in his hometown of Nazareth. Can you imagine if you're Jesus and you're back to your hometown and you're in the midst of your ministry and and you're looking at these people that you've grown up with and you know and, and some of them are your family and they're rejecting you. Like, all these people, I want, I'm here to save the whole earth, but you people are special because you're my people, and you're not hearing what I have to say. That had to hurt his heart. Mark 6, 5, and he could not do any miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. But what he does do is he empowers his disciples, if you remember that, to go out two by two and do ministry in the surrounding areas. And I think he did that because he knew they'd reject him as well. But they get a mixed reception. They get very well received in, other, in some places, and in other places, not so much. Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet and move on. He gives them that. Mark 6.13, though, we know it was effective, and they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Okay, so it's gone from just Jesus and his disciples in this one area, one synagogue, one village, one town, and now he's sent them out into the countryside. It's bound to catch attention, right? It's bound to create some waves. He gives them this limited commission we talked about last week. He empowers them to go out and do this, healing and driving out demons and, and on all these things. And now all of a sudden the notoriety is starting to spread. Okay, Notoriety can be both good and it can be bad. But in this case, what we're talking about today is the notoriety of what's going on, the waves, the ripples, the stuff that's happening has started to reach the ears of some powerful people. What we're going to talk about today is Herod Antipas, King Herod Antipas. Um, Now, if you followed scripture at all or history of the Jewish culture around this time of Jesus, there's a lot of Herods. And it gets confusing. I'm going to try and make just a little bit of sense without going too deeply into it today so that we kind of understand what's going on. Okay, so Mark 6, 14. Now, the disciples are out. They're, they're laying hands. They're anointing with oil. They're performing miracles. They're doing these things. Then we pick up to Mark 6, 14. And King Herod heard about it, for his name has be, had become well known. His meaning Jesus's. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. The people were saying that. You can look for Matthew 14 if you want kind of a parallel account of what's going on here. But this that we're talking about, King Herod, this is Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas, all the way back when Jesus had just begun his ministry, had actually had John the Baptist arrested. John the Baptist Uh, baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And then very shortly, if not immediately after that, 
Herod had, uh, Herod had John the Baptist arrested, thrown into prison. Mark 1.14, it's all the way back in chapter 1. Mark 1.14, now after John was taken into custody, it's just that short and sweet. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. What we do know by other sources, uh, Josephus, a Roman historian, is a very, very good source for this. And a lot of this history is backed up between Scripture and outside sources. We know that John was taken to a fortress, a, a prison, but it was more of a fortress with a, with a prison area in it called Machaerus. It's also known as the Black Fortress, kind of a foreboding sort of a name. But it was located about nine miles or so east of the Dead Sea, if you know kind of your uh, geography of the region. But it was located on a butte about 1,100 feet above the level of the Dead Sea. So it, it kind of rose up. It was sort of impenetrable. In fact, here it is today. I've got a couple pictures. This is what it looks like at a distance today. You can see how steep that hillside is getting there. It was very, very well defended and hard to get to. There's one more picture, kind of a little bit more close up. This is what's left of it. This was the Black Fortress. This was the Palace of Machaerus where John the Baptist was, was held. And you can go there. You can visit it. It's a little hard to get to, but you can actually get there and see that today. Now, I always show you those things because this isn't just a made-up story. It's real. It's history. It happened. Now, John was arrested. Why? Just because he was baptizing people in the Jordan? No, not necessarily. Mark 1.4 gives us a hint. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's why he was arrested. Many people, especially really important people, aren't used to having their sins pointed out. They're not used to being told, you need to repent for your sins, much less being told that publicly. A lot of them, if you're a king, you're pretty foreign to the idea of having to apologize for anything. Pride can be a powerful tool that Satan uses, and we're going to see how pride is about to bite King Herod in a big way, and John the Baptist in an even bigger way. But first, let's take a second and let's sort out this, this Herod situation here, who Herod is. Let's talk a little about King Herod Antipas. Some, um, in fact, in Matthew, they call him a tetrarch, okay? If you've heard the term tetrarch, a tetrarch is a, number one, it's a sub-king, okay? The king, the only tr true king, king really of that whole region was Caesar in Rome, okay? He ruled, ruled that whole area, but he would install, we'd call him more of a governor. He would install a sub-king, a tetrarch in an area to be the governor of that area, and he reported directly to, to Caesar. That's what Antipas was, but he came from a long line of Herods. So if you've gone to that area or looked at your history, you see Herod this, Herod that, Herod this, and it gets kind of confusing. So let's go back a little bit further to the very first in this lineage where in a time, during a time of Roman expansion into this area of Judea, Julius Caesar appointed a guy, his name was Antipater, and he appointed Antipater as the ruler of Judea. This is about 47 BC and in, in, installed him in there. Now Antipater came from the lineage of Esau. 
making him an Edomite. Okay, now his wife, her name is debatable, but what we do know from history is that she was a Samaritan. So both Edomites and Samaritans were not very well liked in the nation of Judea. So to have Antipater installed as ruler over that area was kind of a poke at them anyway. Now, after Julius Caesar was assassinated, anybody know their history? He was assassinated later. His political appointees became targets. Okay, and so many of them were attacked. Many of them were killed outright. Uh, Antipater was one of those. He was poisoned, and he died. Curious circumstances, they say. Poisoned and died. Now, his son would have been um, automatically, in fact, a lot of times his son would have been killed, his whole lineage would have been killed along with him, but his son was somehow able to go into Rome and convince Caesar Augustus at this point that he would be very pro-Rome. He's like, I'll be your guy, I'll do whatever you want, I'll get all the taxes, I'll get everything to you, um, I will be your, your tool here in the area. And he convinced him somehow and they installed him. Now, Antipater's son, name was Herod the first, called the Great. You know, I did all kinds of research, and I can't find that he ever had a first name. I doubt he was born as Herod the Great, but maybe. Maybe his mom thought that, and it was a nickname to begin with. We don't know. But his son, Herod the Great, uh, is now installed there, and he proclaims himself to be king of the Jews. He actually makes that first proclamation. Now, interesting thing about him, he stood, he was about four foot nine. We know that by history, four foot nine. Now, there's a thing, now, apologies to any of you who are about that height, okay? But four foot nine inch tall men seem to have this complex, okay? I'm going to leave it there, but they like to build big things. They like to do things big in a grand way to kind of overcome that shortness of stature. Herod the Great was no different. He did all kinds of giant building projects. He renovated the temple in Jerusalem, went through and, and renovated that again, expanded the whole Temple Mount complex, if you've ever been there. He built the fortress at Masada. He built the fortress at Machaerus that we just saw a picture of. Actually rebuilt it because it had been built centuries before and conquered and flattened and rebuilt and all this stuff over and over again. But he also constructed a port and a palace on the Mediterranean called Caesarea Maritima. And I actually have some pictures. I've been there. Anybody else been to Israel and been to Caesarea Maritima? It is amazing. You can go and walk through it. Let me show you. There's a billion pictures. Look at it. Google it online because it is so cool. Here's one. You can go there and you can walk around in all this. This is Caesarea Maritima. You can see people down on the seashore. Here's another picture of the Hippodrome where they would have their chariot races. You can literally go and walk in and walk around among that. There's a place... Um, it's not in this picture. I think maybe it's up on the top right here. Um, I was going to give you a whole bunch of pictures because it's so cool. Google it on your, on your own. But there's an area that you can go to, which is a pool that kind of goes out into the sea. We'd call it like those, those uh, infinity pools that you have a swimming pool that looks out over the sea. 
but the actual mosaic tiles from that are still on the floor, and you can see that. And it's really weird to stand there and go, this is a 2,000-year-old-plus palace, um, Caesarea Maritima, and then right over there are some locals who have their little bucket full of fish bait, and they're fishing off the edge of it. To them, it's just, it's just how it is. It's not a big thing. But it's so cool. And again, I point these things out to you because they're real places, real people, real history this is. Now, of all those things that, that uh, Herod did, Herod the Great, that is, we're talking about now, most Christians would probably remember him as the Herod who was in charge when Jesus was born. He's the one that the wise men, the Magi, came back to and reported to him. And now ultimately, remember when, when Jesus and his family fled to Egypt, he was mad because he thought he'd been duped. So he actually, what did he do? It's called the massacre of the innocents. Remember this? Matthew 2.16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent men and killed all the boys who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity who were two years old or under according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. That's his biblical claim to fame right there. Now, he eventually died from kidney disease and what history calls us gangrene of the genitalia. I did you all a favor by not posting an image. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, in about... 4 BC, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. Now, there were other Herods, Herod Philippi. There were other Herods, but the ones that were actually installed as leaders was Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas, we know from Scripture that he actually got to meet Jesus right before his crucifixion. That's in Luke 23, Luke 23, 6 through 8. Let me read it to you. Now, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he heard that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod. It's your problem now, since he was also in Jerusalem at this time. Now Herod was overjoyed when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. He wasn't opposed to Jesus. He wanted to meet him. Ultimately, Herod Antipas was executed by Emperor Caligula for charges of conspiracy and debt from his extravagant lifestyle and all this. We'll talk more about Herod Antipas in a minute here. Antipas was succeeded by another Herod, Herod Agrippa, okay, or Agrippa. He's known as the Herod who executed James and imprisoned Peter, okay? So I don't expect you to keep all those clear, but here's, what we, here's our takeaway from all this. The Herodian dynasty, they call it. It's been problematic for a long time. Pride and intrigue and backstabbing and all these sorts of things were problematic not only for their dynasty, but for Jews and for Christians alike. All right, so let's get back to the Scripture. Now you've got a little snapshot of, of the Herods we're talking about here. Back to the Scripture. Mark six fourteen. we talked about it earlier, and I'll just read it to you again to refresh you. And King Herod heard about it, for his name had become well-known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has ridden from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, the people knew about the execution of John the Baptist. It was well-known. 
that that had happened. And in fact, many had a problem with it. Now, they wouldn't say anything out loud. They couldn't say much out loud or they'd be punished. But most people didn't like the fact that Herod, uh, that John the Baptist had been executed. Mark 6, 15, but others were saying he is Elijah. And others were saying he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Now, depending on your translation, it may say he is Elias. That's Elijah and Elias, same, same guy. Now, remember, it had been over 400 years at this point since God last spoke through the prophets to the people. And the people are like, he's got to be a prophet coming back. That would have been significant to the people. Mark 6, 16. But when Herod heard about it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. Okay, he's got a problem with the fact that he beheaded. We're going to talk about it. Scripture talks about it in a second here. But right about this time, now this is just for your history geeks out there. Anybody heard of the name Pythagoras? Okay. Okay, if you're a teacher or you like math or geometry, Pythagoras, you probably... But he was also, uh, he was also a scientist, a philosopher. And at that time, now it was a couple hundred years before Herod, But his theory, he had a theory of reincarnation that he called the transmigration of souls was super popular at this time of Herod. Okay, no, reincarnation was nothing new, but but Pythagoras actually had this theory where he said your soul would actually leave your body and go into someone else. And that you would operate as who you were in a different body. Okay, and... It was so popular at the time that he thought that's got to be John. Now, he was guilty. He felt guilt for what he had done. And guilt coupled with this theory that he was very much a, a proponent or a student of, he's starting to see ghosts. And just this thought, oh, my gosh, it's got to be John the Baptist coming back for me. All right, now, here's where this sordid story of how and why John the Baptist got executed to begin with comes in, and Scripture talks about it. Mark six seventeen. for Herod himself had sent men and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Okay, Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, and then the next line says, because he had married her. Okay, that's a problem. Herodias' real name was Salus. She was actually the daughter of another king from another region. So she had some status. And she was both the niece or the niece of both Philip and Herod. Because Philip and Herod were brothers. And Herodias was their niece. But Philip married her. Herod stole her from Philip while Philip was still alive. And while Herod was actually also still married to someone else. But he stole her and married her. Now, the reason that she, Herodias, demanded that Herod arrest John was for his accusations. John the Baptist preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins, and he was not shy. He wasn't the kind of guy to sit on the sidelines and go, that's not my business. So he got right up right up in Herod's face and said, what you did is wrong. It's sinful. You shouldn't have done that. And since Herodias not only had status as the wife of Herod, but also as the daughter of a king of another region herself, 
she wasn't about to put up with those kind of accusations. It was embarrassing. And it was pointing right at her. And she demanded that Herod arrest John for those accusations. Remember the story of Jezebel and Ahab? So similar. We see so much of that in this. Now, why did Herod have John arrested for something that he himself didn't play a part in? It was strictly that baptism of repentance. And that stung. Mark 6.18, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. I'm sure he was saying a little bit more than that. But that was enough. Herodias was enraged. She was embarrassed. And she was telling her husband, you need to kill that guy. Arrest him and kill him. Well, he did the first part. He arrested him. Mark 6.19, and Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. And she couldn't do so. So she herself didn't have the authority to have him put to death. Herod thought, well, I'll arrest him. Remember that prison that I showed you is roughly in the region that John the Baptist was doing his baptizing. So it was actually the closest prison, closest fortress to take him to. Meanwhile, Herod and his wife, they're all back at Caesarea Philippi. It's about 80 miles, far enough away to where I think Herod thought she can, she'll forget about him. She'll forget about him being there. She didn't. She was enraged. Mark 6.20, for Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and had been protecting him. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, and yet he used to enjoy listening to him. That very perplexed means, it doesn't mean he was confused. It means you're saying things that are blowing my mind. Okay, and he enjoyed listening to him. So Herod both feared and respected John and enjoyed listening to him preach. Preach from prison, but listen to him preach. Mark 6, 21. An opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, held a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading people of Galilee. Now, this was done purely to feed his ego. He would invite in all the big wigs, all of his commanders, everybody, all the rich people. Anybody who was anybody would be there at Caesarea Philippi, or uh, Caesarea Maritima that I showed you. Purely just to feed his ego. Mark 6, 22. And when the daughter of Herodias him, herself came in and danced, entertainment for the birthday party, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it to you. Now, when it says she danced, she wasn't doing ballet. It was a provocative, sensual dance that was designed to get all the men whipped into a frenzy. His own daughter. That shows you some about the character of these people. And in his state of drunken lust, he would have promised her anything. Now, according to Josephus, again, an outside source, the daughter's name is Salome. She later, we know, ends up marrying her uncle Philip to replace the wife that was taken away, apparently. Mark 6, 23, and he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I remember he's saying this publicly in front of all these dignitaries, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Be careful when you make an oath. That rarely works out right. Mark 6, 24 to 26. And she went out and said to her mother, so she didn't know what to ask for. What do I ask for? So she goes out and she asks her mom, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. 
Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. He'd made that public oath right in front of everybody, and he couldn't go back on it. He would have been hugely embarrassed to refuse that request. So Mark 6, 27 and 28 says, Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Herodias ended up getting what she wanted. But here's something that if you put two and two together in the numbers here, it was about 80 miles from Caesarea to where the palace was, Machaerus. It's about, if you're walking, it's about four days. If you're on horseback or with a wagon, it's probably two or three days. Plenty of time each way. Plenty of time to back out of this. Plenty of time to think of some kind of a logical way out. People will probably forget. He didn't do that, though. He actually had it done, brought it back, presented it to her mother. And then this section of Scripture just concludes, Mark 6, 29, when his disciples heard about this, they came and carried away his body and laid it in a tomb. History tells us all kinds of, there are places all over the world that say we have his John the Baptist body. So if you're like, where John the Baptist, where's, you can research that on your own. Strangely, his head is supposed to be somewhere else from where his body was. Research that on your own if you're into that kind of thing, and then see me for counseling, because that's weird. <laughs> now, let's, let's make some sense of this. The story may not seem super deeply theological, but let's think about this. It's a tale about the dangers of sin and pride. Sin and pride. Sin is like compound interest. A small seed will grow and grow and grow, and it compounds, and it snowballs, and it builds up momentum. Once you sin, you're a slave to it, literally. Once you sin, you become a slave to it. And that's not just me. Scripture, John 8, 34 says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave of sin. Sin consumes you. Even a small sin, what we call a lie, that's a small sin. A white lie, it's a small sin. It consumes you and it can possess you. And in this case, what we see here is the sin of ego and pride First of all, ego and pride, I'm going to get all my friends in to throw me a birthday party at my palace. Led to boastfulness, led to him saying, okay, this lust in his heart saying, I'll give you anything, and he boasted in front of everyone. What he wasn't, he wasn't saying, I'll give you, I'll give you everything just because I like you. He was illustrating to his guests, like, I could give away up to half of what I own and not even miss it. But he made that boast, that prideful boast. Then he makes this ungodly oath to the girl. Then that leads to murder. It just continually snowballs. His guilty conscience was jumping at every shadow as a reminder of his guilt. You become a slave to it. When we sin, it's just like that. A tiny sin, let's say, let's say it's just a lie confronts us with two choices. 
we can either come forward and repent when we're confronted with it. We can either repent and come forward and say, you know what? No, that's, that's not true. Or we can double down on the lie. We can tell another one to cover that one, to try and make sense of the two lies that we just told. And it continues, and it ends up just owning you. The difficulty of that choice, whether to just come forward and tell the truth or to double down on it, often lies in what's at stake, right? Is it just, is it your reputation? Is it, is it a financial? Is it a relationship? Is, are you going to somehow profit from it? Is it a legal issue? Is it a moral or a social law issue? Depending on the severity of the, of, the, of the repercussions from it, that sometimes guides our decisions, and it shouldn't, because it's all the same. When I talked about it at the beginning when we were praying, hiding your problems is a sin of pride, because we don't want other people to know. Now, we can tell ourselves, I don't want to be a burden to those people around you but it's a prideful sin. So when we say, I've got all these problems I need prayer for, I want prayer, I want support, but I'm not going to say anything because it would be embarrassing. That's pride in a different form, but it's pride. Now, we talk about what's at stake. One of the very, the lowest form of what's at stake is called self-preservation instinct. Anybody ever heard of that? Just the, the definition of it, Self-preservation is a behavior or set of behaviors that ensure the survival of an organism. It's thought to be universal among all living organisms. Now, if you Google it, there's a couple organisms that don't show that, so don't email me. But it's the lowest form of behavior, self-preservation. I'm not going to put myself in the lion's den on purpose because I'll get eaten. Anybody can do that. But there's another explanation and it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The conviction of the Holy Spirit will tell you, and if you think about it, we are all made in the image of God. And so when we do things that don't live up to the image of God, the Holy Spirit convicts us. That is not who you are meant to be. We see Genesis 127 talks about being made in the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now, this passage does not mean that our form looks exactly like God. It doesn't mean that. What it means is that humans were made in the image of God in their moral, their spiritual, and their intellectual nature. We are made in the image of God. So what that means... Image of God, by the way, in Latin translates, if you, if you have a uh, King James, it might say it this way, imago Dei. And imago Dei is literally the image of God. And it's not a set of physical characteristics. It's not God was six feet tall and, you know, it, it's got nothing to do with the physical characteristics. It's a representation of God and his character, his nature imparted to those who are his children. That's what it is. And when mankind fell into sin, it didn't change the fact that we're made in his image, but that image became distorted. That shining image of God and his holiness 
And his glory oftentimes is barely perceptible in his children. Barely, barely, barely perceptible. But thankfully, we are not beyond the possibility of redemption. Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross for our redemption because he sees us for who we are, for who we truly are, and who we were meant to be. When we accept Jesus and his work on the cross, we remove those shackles of sin that hold us down, that distort the image of God and turn it into what the devil wants us to see. But when we accept Jesus, that image starts to fade and our true image then becomes more clear every day. 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with unveiled faces looking as a as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. It is by the grace of God that we are both redeemable and redeemed. I'm going to let Paul have the final say before we go into communion here. Romans 6, verse 1 through 7. Look at, listen to how Paul says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Far from it. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we may walk in the newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is free of sin. Church, do we put ourselves back in the shackles that Jesus died to take us out of? And if we do that, Who's guiding that? Is that the Holy Spirit convicting you or do we do that because the enemy is influencing us? That's a choice that we get to make every day. And those tiny little sins, tiny little sins keep us captive. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your, for your unchanging word. I thank you that in a time of chaos, it's always there, that we can rely on it, we can learn from it, We can pull from it the truths, the everlasting, unchanging truths that you want us to know about who you are and who we are meant to be. So, Lord, I thank you, and I pray that anyone here hearing this message or hearing this word would think and let the Holy Spirit convict them about who they were meant to be because we're meant to be a reflection of you in this world. So help us, Lord, to see those things, to set them aside and then slowly become transformed into your image, your glorious image. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are going to go into a time of communion now. I've asked Michael and Rhonda Littlefield to serve it over here. Now, communion, if you're out there online, let's do it together. The body of Christ broken for you. It can be any element but it represents the brokenness that he took upon himself, the punishment that we deserve 
for our fallen, broken nature. He took that to redeem us back to the Father. And then the blood of Christ, which washes us clean. Father God no longer sees us through the veil of sin that we are. He sees us clearly, and he knows who we are. And that's done through the redemptive blood of Jesus. So at the crosses, we have juice. You can serve yourself at the crosses if you like, but then they'll be serving you up front here. Let's do this, but let's also pray for one another. As we started at the beginning, that doesn't have to be your only time of prayer for the day. If you need prayer, we have prayer team in the back. Please go back there or turn to the person next to you and get prayer for those things that you need and we all need prayer for. Let's take this time and let's reflect on what the Lord is working in our hearts as we worship together. Amen? Thank you, guys.